you know, creating like a legitimate media operation just to get to franchises, it's too much work. And I think it's a distraction, but trying to focus on one channel and grow it organically that relates to your brand and your business, like that's absolutely worth it. But I would just stick to one, keep it simple. And over time that, you know, it'll compound. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show, we have a return guest in Eric Van Horn. Eric is a former multi-unit franchisee who has now been in the industry for many years. He has his own Facebook group and podcast for franchise industry professionals. And this conversation is one that we're actually jointly using for both our shows. Eric and I chat about what we're up to in the content world, as well as our current ventures, mine with Crockett and his with Front Street Equity. Enjoy the conversation. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. All right, Wolf, welcome back. How do people that don't know you address you? You know, most ask me what they should call me. Depending on the setting, I give them my real name or I just say you can, you know, I go by Wolf half the time. You go by The Wolf or Wolf? No, no. Uh, wolf works. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, got to drop the, the it's, a bit, it's a bit smoother and cleaner. <laughs> what about Wolf of Wall Street? What does Jordan do? What does he say? I think he's trying to get away from that brand a little bit. Uh, after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, I started the Wolf of Franchises kind of as a joke and now it's, become a bit more of a serious thing. And yeah, I do get that question sometimes from like people who discover it or they're like, are you sure you want that association? But at this point, it is what it is. It is what it is. Let's go there, man. Like, you know, in franchise, I talked to so many franchisors as they start, yeah. as they're looking at becoming part of our portfolio companies at Front Street Equity. So young franchisors that are, you know, 50 plus locations open or people that are thinking about franchising. And it's interesting to hear the stories because they start out doing one thing. They might be in one business, they might be in one industry. And then as they progress, they find themselves like with different opportunity that may be even better opportunities. So what has that been like for you as you kind of look back at where you were before to where you are now? What doors have opened up that you were not expecting? Yeah, it's a great question. I think probably pretty common amongst most entrepreneurs, right? They start out with a plan and it doesn't necessarily go to the plan and then you figure it out along the way. But yeah, I mean, I started the Wolf of Franchises. I guess we can start there, right? In July of 2021, uh, it was just a hobby. You know, I was working in franchise development and kind of moonlighting on Twitter and with a weekly newsletter, just breaking down emerging franchises that I found interesting. And I'd say the first opportunity that I wasn't expecting was a media startup called Workweek reached out to me. We've since partnered and been partnered for a while, but they used to work for The Hustle, which is a popular newsletter that got acquired by HubSpot for, you know, 25-ish million. So they know newsletters, they know how to grow audiences. So I never expected to get that, like almost that 
professionalization of of my newsletter and you know be able to spend full time on just doing content and growing my Twitter audience, which today is at like one hundred twenty two thousand, and then the newsletter is now at forty thousand. And we have a blog and, you know, of course, a podcast. So I never expected to like go all in on media. And then secondly, more recently, we launched Crockett, which is a separate entity, a separate endeavor. Uh, and it's, you know, that's come with its own twists and turns, but it's primarily a financial data management tool for franchisors and all their franchisees. And, you know, I'd say that never would have been possible if I didn't go all in on the media and was able to, you know, build an audience, which, you know, today... Has allowed us. We're about six months into the Crockett journey and haven't had to spend a dime on marketing because we just have the organic eyeballs and listeners and followers and, and the like. That's interesting how you say media company. I remember having a conversation with Ryan Dice, one of the founders of Digital Marketer, and we were just you know brainstorming some stuff. And this was about seven years ago. He's like, Eric, are you doing this franchising thing or is this a media company that you're building? I'm like, media company? No, it's not a media company. They're like, but I, you know, I was was aware enough to say, what do you mean by media company and how does that look and why do you ask that? And then he went in and broke it down and realizing, boy, a lot of what I do and content out there is really more like a media company. I've not done it at your scale, but I definitely had that frame as I've built content and built on the platforms that that I have. And I think probably more franchisors need to look at what could they do in terms of content and thinking more like a media company to build out their brand. So what kind of advice would you give a franchisor? What kind of comments do you have on that for franchisors thinking, maybe I need to have a podcast, a newsletter, more active on Twitter, some of these things? There's definitely no one size fits all answer, but I think the benefits are obvious, right? Like I kind of mentioned it for Crockett, right? I can send a tweet. It costs Crockett $0 to get in front of potentially, you know, 122,000 followers. And, you know, the way Twitter's algorithm or X, sorry, X's algorithm works, you know, it ends up in a bunch of other people's feeds. So you end up getting a lot more impressions than you even have followers. But right with how much franchisors pay to acquire a franchisee, that's where my head would be at as a franchisor is like, you know, and even let's, you know, brokers count as paying to me, right? 100%. I think people just kind of think like, oh, it's like, it's the franchisee's money. So, but like, hey, that could be money in your bank account. There's an opportunity cost to just, you know, giving up half yeah, it's acquisition costs. Whether you're paying a yes, broker, exactly. you're paying a media company, or you are the media company putting out content, there's acquisition costs for the franchisee that is your new, latest and greatest franchisee. Exactly. And like, look, I just think I try to tell any emerging franchisor I'm talking with, just like, hey, do the math on just 10 units. You know, if you imagine if you kept every franchise fee and look what happens when you give all those to brokers, which it's fine. Like, I think a blended approach is the right way to go because there are brokers who are funneling quality candidates. So like a blended approach would be what I would suggest. But, you know, the content, right? I mean, it depends on the industry. I think there's a bit, little bit of like good fortune, depending on your industry, right? Where if you're a restaurant franchise or like a pet franchise, I mean, that's like very shareable content. So like I would go hard on Instagram or, you know, even, I mean, SEO is interesting these days. Like the Google algorithm is definitely like getting so gamified where every time you search something, you end up on a blog post that isn't actually helpful. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then you have ChatGPT and people think that's going to crush Google. So I, I'm not honestly smart enough to even speak to that at this point. But yeah, I would think pick one channel 
whether it's a newsletter, a podcast, and I wouldn't recommend podcasts. I'm sure you know this, Eric. They're very hard to scale relative to maybe other platforms. But I would say pick one because like ultimately your job is to sell or to grow your franchise and support your franchisees. You know, creating like a legitimate media operation just to get to franchisees, it's too much work. And I think it's a distraction. But trying to focus on one channel and grow it organically that relates to your brand and your business, like that's absolutely worth it. But I would just stick to one, keep it simple. And over time that, you know, it'll compound. Don't stay off all the other platforms, but don't focus on it. If you have something that you're putting on Instagram, then put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, put it on yep. these others. Know that it's that's not the best way to do it, but you don't have the the attention or the time to put the attention into all the details with all the different platforms, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. You just got to pick one and go all in. I've been hearing more and more about LinkedIn, actually. Yeah, same here. And I made the decision myself to really go all in on Twitter, you know, a year and a half ago. And like, you'll see that like my LinkedIn following is, I think, four or 5,000. And, I, you know, so Dude, that's so like hundred. That's yeah. so weak. I would, <laughs> I would be no, so man. afraid to admit that. I know, man, it's low, but um, the big, you need to announce on Twitter that your link, like Eric crushes your LinkedIn following. <laughs> like you are so weak on LinkedIn. No, but I'm super weak on Twitter and I'm trying to do a little bit more, but it does take work. All this stuff it takes does. work. To build a following, to have influence is a lot of work. Where would you be today if you had not partnered with Workweek or had an agreement with Workweek to have them behind you helping you? This is the true answer. You know, like I think I've heard this question before and people like answer with like a fraction of their following. But the truth is, it I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be on this podcast. The content wouldn't exist because what would have happened is I would have stayed with my franchise sales job. I would have used all my best immediate content ideas, which I remember I had like a 30 Twitter thread shortlist and I blew through it in like my first two months at work week. And then I wanted to quit because I didn't grow. But if I was doing that while having a full-time job, I would have been like, screw this. Like I can't figure it out and I'll go figure out something else to do. And, you know, so like the beauty of work week was one, I had a support system that when I did want to quit, they were like, Hey, you're two months in, like chill out, like give it some time. And so I bought in and was like, I'm just going to do this for a year. I'm not going to focus on metrics. I'm just going to head down. Maybe I'll check in once a quarter on my metrics. I'm not going to freak out over, you know, every week I only gained like six followers. Right. So the support system and then also just the time, because like, honestly, I started out, I wasn't good at content. Like my tweets were like, not interesting, not entertaining, not even that useful <laughs> half the time. So it gave, there is an art to it. It's definitely not a science with content, but it gave me the time to like, I, I started to understand, all right, if I talk like this and I tweet this kind of content, like people definitely like it resonates with them and it's more helpful. So it gets more engagement and yada, yada, yada. So I kind of learned the formula for it all. I think that's why people want advisors, part of their brand. Franchisees want to be around other successful franchisees that could give them really good advice. And especially if they're paid advisors or equity advisors or like what we do at Front Street, like there's, you have somebody like Workweek that is able to say, hey, chill out. This is not a two month game. This is a longer term game. And we've been down this road before and we know what it takes. So just keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure they had guardrails and kept you focused on the right things. And then at some point, I mean, did it just explode or did you just look back and think like, oh, wow, this is bigger and better than I thought it would be at this point? There's definitely like inflection points 
you know, I think it took me like nine months to gain 4,000 followers on Twitter. And then I did this thread about Quiznos and how they kind of collapsed over the, you know, last 10 years or whatever. And I gained 9,000 followers just from that thread. So I went from 4,000 to like 13,000 over literally within 24 hours. And then from there, that kind of like, it gets somewhat easier. I used to think it was like a direct correlation that if you just had like 100,000 followers, you could tweet anything and you're going to gain like 500 followers with every tweet. So you still got to put out good stuff. But that definitely made it easier because I had a bigger base to work off of. And then, yeah, I kind of found that formula with Twitter threads. And that's really, I mean, looking back, I worked too much. I think that's actually good food for thought if someone's like seriously trying to go in on content. It's addictive. Ultimately, it's not good for your mental health. And like, I was living on Twitter. Like, I mean, I was like giving up weekends, you know, working late nights. Like I was living in New York. My office was was my bedroom. I would wake up, roll out of bed, get on my computer and I'd work till midnight and I'd just get out of my desk chair and my bed was like two feet away and then I'd go to sleep. It was like, looking back, it was depressing, man. But yeah, so it was a grind, but that was definitely like that first Twitter thread put me on the map and then I just kept pumping out more every single week. So the consistency was a huge part of it. Who doesn't like what you're doing? I've got this Facebook group, as you know, and I yep. started out of COVID and we're, I was just couldn't wait to get to 100 people in there. Then all of a sudden it was a thousand. And now it's like at 5,500. I'm always, always uh, keeping close eye on who's coming in. If they don't look like yeah. they're franchise related. I kick out, I, I don't let them in or, you know, so it's not about the numbers, but now it's sure. just easy to grow. But at some point, you know, I even forgot where I was going with this question, man. Where was I going with this question? Uh, you asked who doesn't like what I'm doing. Yeah. So uh, to, before you, yeah, yeah. So we will not edit this out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All good. Because in that Facebook group, dude, I got people in there that just, I don't know. They're always grumpy. They're always pointing out things of, they're always taking the contrarian view and making sure everybody knows their opinion is always right 100% of the time. Yeah. And I got haters in there. But what about you? I mean, is there such, do people hate on what you're doing or is it pretty easy? It's definitely not easy. I think for one, I've kept the brand for strategic reasons and we can talk about that if you want. But I'd say it's like, it's easier from like a a human emotional side of things in the sense that like, it's a French fry that people see like, right? Like you see me right now, but when the listeners are watching this, potentially like they're going to see the French fry. <laughs> so it's just like, I don't know. It, no one can call me out. Like, I see the stuff that True. happens on Twitter and the internet in general. Like there's nasty comments. People go up, people's like looks and age and this and that. So I don't get, I ignore all that because it's just this cartoon French fry. And it almost like kind of neutralizes anyone who would be super angry. So like I have gotten comments. I definitely get angry newsletter replies sometimes. Like I did a- uh, <laughs> Give me your best one. What's been the most angriest newsletter reply that you've seen that or that you remember? Oh, I mean, I've definitely gotten people cursing me out. Uh, one time it was a, a nonprofit that, you know, they were helping with gun laws because of all these school shootings and all the little kids that have died. And I linked out to it. Apparently it had like, I don't even know if it was questionable political affiliations, but like, anyway, they took it as a major political statement. Then I got like a bunch of people being like, F you, like you bleeding heart, this and that. And I was like, oh my God, like, I just, I don't want kids to die. Sorry. Like, <laughs> I that's don't it. Yeah, like it was like crazy and then, oh, another one, man. Recently, I did like a, honestly, I was struggling for content ideas. So, I, you know, I have, everyone's got opinions. I don't love like just, I try to be objective and like provide data. Like that's kind of my theme. But 
I just did like hot takes, kind of like my like five hot takes. And I did one where, you know, I just said like I, I think like around eighty percent of franchises probably aren't worth the investment, which that leaves you with like seven hundred ish out of the three to thirty five hundred active franchises. So like that's what I said. I was like, you should focus on that top like after that short list, which that's a long list, like you probably shouldn't do anything because it's just to me they're not worth the investment but that that's generalization anyway got some angry replies where i don't know if they were franchisors or what but just like f you you have no credibility now like that's a ridiculous statement and this and that but yeah <laughs> it's fun man sometimes I mean, people's we, sure opinions are too. hilarious and i just i got to the point where i just i just laugh and people try to bait you into arguments and they try yes. to bait you know and i just i think i don't have the desire to spend time replying to these ridiculous comments, you know, yep. and I just, I, I would rather go do something fun, you know, with my friends or my family or, or something like that versus spend time replying to people that I don't know and will never know. And I really don't care about what they said. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like there's times where I feel like it annoys me or like it gets me angry and I have to like, just pause, take a deep breath. I'm like, this is not worth it. And like exactly what you said. I'm like, close the laptop, like, like go enjoy life. Exactly. <laughs> it's so ridiculous to spend time and energy on the, that stuff. All right. So you put a lot of, uh, a lot of thought and you and you, me and, uh, another guy had a call the other day just to talk about content, what we're doing and that happens a lot. You know, you don't need a paid mastermind group to do some of the stuff. You just call up some friends that are doing some similar things and you just get together and talk and talk shop and whatnot. And we were talking and you do a lot of your own research and for your content and whatnot. And let's talk about those newsletters. What has changed over the years that you started to break down these item 19s and your takeaways out of these different brands that you look into and ultimately put out in a newsletter? I'd say, I mean, the financial side of it has actually stayed fairly consistent. Like I kind of made it up for the first month when I started it where, so I guess the context is I was working for an FSO at that point and we only had a couple brands. Uh, I obviously knew there's a lot more to franchises, like a, a lot more brands out there. And that was part of my role at the FSO was to find other franchises to partner with. But for the news that are actually really like broadened it out and that was like, a great just learning experience. Like it was boring at times, but just reading through hundreds of FTDs. And so my like, after covering three or four or five brands, my kind of process was if they show some form of profitability, whether they're defining it as EBITDA or net income or net profit, the brands that have at least ideally one third of their, like EBITDA represents at least one third of the high end of the investment. I found a theme that there's, you know, a number of brands, like hundreds of brands that can do that. And then if they don't show EBITDA, then their revenue should be at least two times the high end of their initial investment. Because, um, you know, because that, of that, it's likely that the EBITDA number kind of falls into place. Exactly. Like you're, I'm assuming at least, you know, around a 10% EBITDA. So if it's a food franchise, I'm definitely like banking that in. If it's not, ideal, it's probably, I would hope higher. If it's not like, you know, like a pet franchise or a service, you know, like a gutter cleaning franchise, whatever the case is. Although those, you know, the service franchises typically have like a revenue, like 10 times higher than their initial investment. But yeah, so that was the financial side of it. I'd say 
from like the quality, more qualitative stuff, I definitely place more value in some type of like, I don't want to say moat because it's very, you know, it's almost cliche at this point, but like there's a lot of noise in certain arenas, like fast casual. I mean, no disrespect to like someone who's starting a new salad concept, but it's just, hey, like it's going to be tough. Like, I don't know how the menu can really, how you can get through to the consumer that your menu is that differentiated. And then that obviously flows up to the franchisee. We're like, how is your concept that different from all the other salad concepts or sweet green, whatever. So yeah, just like some type of differentiation. And I'm talking now about like the top 1% of franchises, like the ones that grow like wildfire and they can actually back it up by getting units open and having solid unit economics. So I think a little bit more deeply about that for like the long term, if someone was to buy a franchise. Why are these brands not putting information in the item 19? I've got some thoughts on this. Let's talk, let's share some stories. Let's do a little uh, story swapping because I've had some very interesting conversations about why certain brands did not put item 19s in. And I'll go first on this. And then you come up with a really good story too. Talking with someone the other day, and they were saying, hey, we don't have an item 19. And I'm like, well, why not? And well, we do about $200,000 in gross revenue. I'm thinking that's not a lot of money for a brick and mortar location that's been open for eight years. And so I said, what kind of drops the bottom line on that? And it was just crickets. Well, we need a franchise. So immediately deflection. And they are a franchise right now. Zero franchisees, but they are a franchise. Quick deflection. Well, what we want to do is have a franchisee open this up in a different market with better rent and do higher revenues so we can show what they make in net profit. And so, in other words, hey, we're not making franchise or hey, we're not says, hey, we're not making any money. That's why we didn't put anything in the item 19. We've been doing this for eight years. We have nothing to really offer a new franchisee, but an opportunity to do better than we're doing as a franchisor so more people can buy this franchise. Our advice to this person was don't franchise, like stop selling franchise. We said the best thing that you did was not get a franchisee. Your life would be harder if you had a franchisee. They didn't like that. They said our life would be easier if we had a franchisee because we would have better numbers and et cetera. We're like, no, you would have to, you would be in big trouble if you had a franchisee and you weren't making money yourself. So anyway, we went kind of back and forth. We just said, just focus on your own unit level economics and get those up. And at some point you are making money that you're proud to share with people, put that in item 19, then start selling franchises. So that was just a conversation that I had last week, man. But you know, these are stories that I've never really shared before. I'm going to start sharing more of them. I'll never disclose who they were or give any type of hint of who they were. But I'm sure you get a lot of different interactions like that. So what's your story? What's a good story? The way it comes to me is different, right? Like we're not running an FSO, but people want features in the newsletter sometimes or they want to sponsor. And, you know, I have criteria where it's like, hey, if I don't see anything. I might see. If you can write the biggest check, then you're in. Is that that the criteria? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, some people want to play that game. But yeah, I'm like, hey, like, you know, it's a good thing that I've almost built up this expectation from the audience, right? Where they're used to seeing the financials in my newsletter. And so like if I was to promote a brand, either like they pay for an ad spot or if I do like a sponsored deep dive, which is not common, but it can be done. 
I need to be able to share numbers because the audience would be like, hey, what the hell? Like, there's no data in this one. Like, that's your whole thing, man. Like, transparency. So I've had franchisors, though, a few in particular, both started in COVID, both raised money to get started. So, and like great looking brands, I would say very like competent founders, really good founders, good people too, which is like, this is the sad part to me. But like, because they started during COVID and like, I have a lot of respect for the fact that they've been grinding it out, but they've never been profitable. And so like, ultimately, like I was digging out, I was like, hey, like, I love everything about this, but like, you don't have item 19, what's going on there? And ultimately after digging and like kind of beating around the bush, because maybe, I don't know if as an FSO, I'd probably feel more inclined to just be like, hey, we don't, like, I need to know about this or else we're not partnering with you because that's such a deep relationship. Sometimes it's a little awkward for me because we're talking about like maybe a one-off sponsorship, but ultimately the answer was like, hey, like we opened during COVID and like, we're not actually, we've never been profitable yet. And I'm like, hey, like that's like, again, good on you for grinding it out. I get it. Like I helped start Crockett, software company, not a franchise, but still it's very tough to start companies. Like I, so I resonate with the founders of these companies, but you should not be franchising yet if you've never yourself even had a profitable month. That's the opposite. Like the whole point is that you have your systems figured out. So yeah, I just, those conversations when that, that finally was admitted, I was just like, really? Like, come on, man. Like you, like I'm like, you can't franchise it yet if you, yeah, you're not I mean, even profitable. So yeah, just, it's, it's a shame. Kind of boggles my mind. And makes you wonder in brands that don't have an item 19, now, some of these people don't have an item 19 and they still may have profitable corporate locations or profitable franchise locations. So it's not to say that they aren't. They might not be proud of them or they might not have them in there for other reasons that maybe their attorney has given them some bad information, in my opinion, of not putting in in those types of numbers. So but I'm with you. Like when we we do deep dives and we get we get into it with these founders in a in a good way of really starting to understand their business. And I understand so many industries that I've never understood before, but that's if the brands aren't making money, I don't know how, if their corporate locations aren't making money, franchisees aren't making money, I don't know how they can be part of, of what we're doing or really uh, sell any franchises. Because if a brand doesn't have an item 19 in there and they don't have any franchises to validate with, how do you as a buyer buy that brand? I mean, I, I know I'm not going to name anything. Maybe, I mean, maybe we should, honestly, but there's some <laughs> FSOs that exclusively, like they don't, they never, sh they rarely show item 19s in the brands they work with. And I wonder how they're able to sell franchises, but they do. And yeah, it's, uh, Ooh, it's crazy. Let's I mean, talk I about that, man. Let's talk about some of the sales stuff of ways that you could sell around an item 19 because that might be helpful. I want to help people, man. I got these, I, yeah. this person I talked to the other day, I put out a, a message the other day on Facebook and everywhere. Hey, who's got some good business coaches or business masterminds that I can put some of these brands in touch with to help them get their business, their small business into a place where it's highly profitable. So then at some point we can talk to them at, at Front Street or they can sell franchises and actually be a good franchisor. So I love to help people. There's buyers out there that, that are getting sold by good salespeople. So there's a difference between a good franchise development person, meaning good, they know how to sell franchises and work around things. And sometimes it's easier to sell without an item 19 because you don't you can dance around that. So how do people dance around no item 19s? 
So from what I've heard, I think a common deflection is they use regulation as an excuse. So they'll say, oh, you know, like franchise regulation doesn't allow us to share any financials or projections, which that's partially true. You can't share projections. But well, if- the best lies are partially true. So this is yeah. great, man. <laughs> this is great. This, this is going to help some people. I really hope it does. Because, yeah, I mean, uh, like, yes, you can never project future performance. You can absolutely share past performance data. And if the data is accurate and it's true and you didn't, you know, add a zero on purpose to the revenue and the EBITDA or whatever, right? Like if it's legitimate data backed by actual financial statements, there is absolutely nothing illegal about that. I don't know if certain franchisors are just using their attorney as an excuse because the response I've gotten when I've like pressed franchisors, I'm like, hey, like that's not true. And like on Twitter, I'll tag some franchise attorneys that are very open about this stuff. And they'll be like, yeah, the wolf is right. Like, that is totally legal. You know, they'll be like, oh, well, our attorney said said it's not. And so, like, I don't know if that's a cover-up or if there are just lawyers getting bad ad- giving bad advice. I don't know. I tend to think it's the, the former, not the latter. I think it's uh, both. But that's a common that, one, man. That is a common one. Attorneys do tend, there are some attorneys that give advice of, hey, you probably don't want an item 19 in there. And I don't know why they're doing it. They might be doing it because that's truly what they believe is best for the franchise or from a, a liability perspective, or it might be an attorney that's not that good. They just not really good at doing FDD yeah. or haven't really, that's not their thing. They might be, they shouldn't be doing FDDs. I've talked to so many brands, man. They're working with franchise attorneys that are not franchise attorneys. That didn't even make sense. They're working with attorneys who are not franchise attorneys and it's, yeah. they're getting such bad advice. So yeah, as a buyer, what the wolf said is like, you know, ask them why they don't have an item 19. And if they start to wiggle the lots, this, that, or the other, then that dig deeper into that. The other thing that you might want to do is look at the competition out there. So if it's in, in a certain space, look at the competitors item 19s to see what they have. And now that could be good or bad because Let's say you you don't have an item 19 as a franchisor and your competitor has an amazing item 19. What do you do? Do you put in a item 19 that's weak, accurate yet weak? Or do you just avoid it and say, hey, look what our competitors are doing. We're better than them. You know, that's another kind of uh, way that some franchisors kind of skirt around that too, to use a, an amazing competitor's item 19, which is not their item 19. Have you seen that done before? Wait, where they'll, inc- they'll show their competitors? They'll not show it. If it's their they'll own? hint at it. Hey, why don't you check out competitor A, big, big, the biggest, biggest competitor that we have out there. They got some pretty good numbers. No way. Oh my God. I can't believe that works. But like, there are some I mean this, and this isn't meant to sound like I'm condoning it, but like there's some incredible salespeople out there yeah. that they're able to pull this stuff off. If only like they use their powers for good. It's like the, what I always think. It's like, imagine how many franchises you could award if like you were working for a good brand, if you're able to figure it out without the numbers. Yeah, it's a shame, man. There's also like the classic tactic of they'll geo-target, pretend to geo-target, where it's like, hey, we're actively trying to build in and like, insert your exact location, you know, in this part of the sentence. So it's like, yeah, we're actively looking to build in North Dakota. And like, you're a great fit. It's like, no, they're probably not. They're just saying that to literally every candidate in the country. So yeah, it's, there's some 
classic tactics, man. That all right? Let's. I hope let's, people can see through it. I do too. Let's go on the other direction. Say it's a great brand. Franchisees are making really good money. Kind of industry standard, good money. Brand does not have an item nineteen. How? Um, and they just heard us just blast these brands without <laughs> item nineteens, and they're like, "I need to run." This guys, these guys are, you know, snakes. And that's absolutely not true with a brand. They're good people, good yeah. franchisor, franchisees aren't making yep. money. They don't have an item 19. How do uh, prospective franchisees know if they are a good brand, maybe just doing things wrong, you know, just not putting in item 19s and they're not really snake. How does a buyer navigate that? I would say talk to as many franchisees as possible, yeah. which like that's obviously yeah. advice that, Right. You should do anyway, regardless of the item 19 or not. If you're seriously considering a brand, I mean, talk to as many as you can. And I think like a good example is, uh, I mean, Jimmy or not Jimmy John, sorry, Jersey Mike's this past year included financials in their FDD, but they hadn't for many years before then. I think it was like seven or eight years in a row, but I've never heard anything but amazing things from the people who own that brand. And obviously like they've grown a lot, which doesn't always mean that the franchise itself is doing well. However, from everything I hear, like it's just positive. And then their average unit volumes are really good for a sub, like a sandwich franchise. So yeah, I think talking to franchisees, it would be my like first go-to as step one. So let's dive into that a little bit deeper on how to validate with a with franchisees of a brand like that. One of the things that you can do is pull up competitors' FDDs, kind of see what, and just, you know, pull up what you think is kind of industry standard. You know, maybe it's a million dollars in revenue, 30% net margins drop to the bottom line after royalties, all expenses, et cetera. Maybe they say, hey, you're breaking even, cash flow break even after six months. And let's say all of that is true with competitors. Brand doesn't have an item 19. We look at, at Front Street, when we're looking at brands that to partner with, that become portfolio brands, we look at their competitors' item 19s and to make sure that they are in line with that. We don't want it to be huge outliers either because something's wrong if they're huge outliers either way. So anyway, you can do the same thing as a prospective franchisee. Look at the competitors, see what they're doing, see what their average franchisee is doing, or maybe the top third, top 25%, and then validate, like you were saying, validate with the franchisees of this brand that you're looking at without an item 19 and see if those franchisees are doing those types of numbers. Because I'd like to have a base to start with. And that would be kind of the base that I would start with to start validating. What would you add to that or maybe not even agree with? I would say to add to it, understanding this, I think a lot of folks, maybe they just hear like whatever the top line and bottom line is, and then just think they might hit that in year one. So like understanding that the ramp up phase that the franchisees have gone through, you know, uh, and that relates specifically to the amount of work and capital you're going to want on hand. You know, I've heard some franchisees, they double the initial investment that they see and they want that amount in their bank account in case it takes longer to ramp up before they, you know, their location can fund all the expenses. So understanding that is like, is this a two-year payback, three, four-year payback, et cetera, that's key. And then also understanding like the location that each franchise is in. And that's tough because like, it's a lot of work. It's, it's intense research if you want to do it the right way. And you really want to understand like, where is each franchisee located and how does that correlate to their revenue, right? Because like that matters so much for the brick and mortar businesses. You know, if, if you're talking to all the top performing franchisees and they're in like what we would define as an A location, 
But then you just think, oh, like this concept's good. And then you open up in a C location in your territory. That actually could make a big difference depending on what concept you're buying. So like for real estate franchises, I mean, sorry, brick and mortar franchises, there's a great quote by the Saxby franchisee who I've become friends with. And he says, you know, you can pay for your location once or you can pay for it every single day. And he's saying like, if you pick a bad location, you're going to pay for it every day because it caps, puts a hard ceiling on your revenue potential. So yeah, for me, man, real estate and ramp up time are critical things to understand in addition to everything you said. So to piggyback on ramp up a little bit more, I think this is what a lot of people that are getting into franchising don't understand. I think that's it's good to ask the ramp up. Ask, are there any outliers in your ramp up, your first year, six months, year that had an impact positive or negative to your particular story? Because you could get on the phone with somebody and validate and say, hey, how's it going? Great. You making money? Yeah, making a lot of money six months into it. That's awesome. How much money did you make six months into it? A hundred grand. That's awesome. Okay, so quick math. Gonna make 200 grand my first year and I'll probably continue to do more. Click, hang up, I'm ready to buy. The But to do a deeper dive, hey, why do you think that you were able to do $100,000 in your first six months? Is this normal? Is this an outlier? Well, we just had a big storm come through here that caused all of the houses to flood and we're in the restoration business. And so I've got all kinds of work. Nobody else is making this kind of money, you know? And that's a true story. I heard that from, from oh, somebody. God. Uh, so yeah. you just need to dig deeper into finding out if they are outliers and why versus just saying, okay, so another one is in the in brick and mortar. If someone was to validate with me when I owned own salon suites, if they were and I if I still owned them, they would say, Hey, how quickly did you break even? Very quickly, sometimes month number one. And they would say, you know, what's kind of your net margins, your EBITDA margins? And I would tell them. And then click, they go by. Well, what they weren't asking me is when did I sign my leases? What was out of the last recession when I was getting amazing deals and still able to uh, have margins that nobody else gets because I had those types of leases? So people just need to dig a little bit deeper versus just asking, when'd you break even? How much money are you making? And would you do it again? That's an interesting one. The lease pricing, something that I found uh, that's happened a few times is someone's doing due diligence and they hear the you know net margins and it looks great. But what the franchisee didn't share and not necessarily like they weren't purposely withholding information, but something that I just think everyone should ask is there are certain franchisees who they have a general manager, but it's their wife who isn't on the payroll or it's the husband who isn't on the payroll. or And they also, by the way, have a few of their kids working for free or like minimum wage because, you know, it's a family business. I mean, if you don't have that option as a franchise owner to have a spouse kind of team up with you, all of a sudden that's potentially 60 to 100 grand for an actual GM to run that thing semi-passively or, you know, semi-absentee, whatever we're going to call it. So, and it also goes the other way, which is the funny part too, is that- um, I knew you were going here. I knew you were going yeah. here. This is good. I was Did going you? there too. Yeah. I think I know where you're yeah. going. I mean, I just lost my train of thought. Well, the good. Other so I'm not, way. And I'm going to put this all <laughs> over Facebook and YouTube that the wolf lost his train of thought. I will edit out <laughs> my part of that. So just to uh, not be fair, that will definitely happen. There we go. Paint the picture, man. All I'm right. Not, let me come in and rescue you yeah. because that was just very embarrassing for you. Very embarrassing. So on the flip side, what happens if someone you're validated with somebody and they're like, hey, I'm not making any money. 
I'm working pretty stinking hard. This sucks. And they, you know, that scares off that buyer. What the buyer didn't know is this franchisee's paying themselves $400,000. They're paying yes. themselves and they're not including that into the EBITDA margins or, or net operating margins. Is yep. that where you were going? Yeah. So it really can go both ways. Yeah, it, exactly. So it, it can go both ways. And yeah, I think it's just like people should probably prep before the call to like really think about, because if you just come out and ask, right, how much money are you making? Or, you know, like just go direct and blunt. It, it's pretty awkward, I would say. So you kind of got to just strategically like think about how you want the conversation to get to this point. But like you absolutely should be asking these questions and you know, it's fair to ask. I would imagine most franchisees are receptive to it because at a certain point, they were the person on the phone as a yeah. prospect. And so then just a funny tidbit. Yeah, just one thing. Uh, one of my, someone I've become friends with in the industry, he's been a franchisee or in a franchisee, but every time he does due diligence, he starts with the New York City and the New Jersey and the Philadelphia franchisees because he's like, these East Coasters, they're just going to tell you exactly how they feel right away. So <laughs> that's like, that's his... Uh, that's his golden nugget for how to really get to the truth yeah, as quick a, as possible. That's a good golden nugget. Yeah, they're going to tell you exactly. And as a friend, as they're kind of the yeah. worst candidates to get when you're selling franchises too. You're like, <laughs> these guys are going to be so hard. They just tell you like it is and they don't yep. care. But that's a good point when yeah. it comes to validating. Talk to those <laughs> New Jersey, New York, Philly franchisees. You'll get the straight scoop. Yep. I like it. I like it. All right. So- yeah. Whenever we get off a call with a franchisor at Front Street and just kind of giving them some advice, we don't, most of the brands that we talk to, we'll never do anything with, but we always try to help them with something. And my comment about franchisees making money and not realizing they're making money because they're paying themselves W-2s, high W-2s, which is another thing they probably shouldn't be doing. But if they're paying themselves high W-2s and they don't really think that they're making money and they're validating that they're not making money, that's a problem. Because they actually are making money, but they don't think that they are. So franchisors out there, this is happening in your system. I think you probably need to help franchisors understand their financial model. And I think a lot of franchisors out there are not really helping their franchisees understand their books, kind of money that they're making and help them with that and manage their business by the numbers. What do you think about all that? Completely agree. And like, especially the last few months, I've had a lot of direct experience with that. And this actually ties into the Ed19 conversation as well, where so with Crockett, the software company I helped launch, we have an API that integrates with basically every accounting software out there, as well as a lot of point of sale systems. And we have banking integrations coming soon. So it's a tool for franchisors to not only track all their financials, consolidate those three tech stacks into one. But then they also get that ability to see how all their franchisees are doing in an apples to apples format. So we help them standardize the data. So a lot of them just, you know, they're not using a tool like that. You know, I think franchises as a whole, probably as an industry, it's a bit behind like a lot of other industries from a tech perspective. But we're, we're obviously trying to change that. But uh, as far as like the item 19 conversation, that's actually a reason I found because we're, we're speaking with some multi hundred location franchises that they don't have an item 19 and it's. They said, and I trust generally, actually, uh, the brands I'm referencing, I can't say the name because they're not a client yet, but that they're not actually just sharing item 19 because they just kind of didn't focus on their tech stack and they literally just don't have access to the financials. Some brands that have grown and are successful and have gotten private equity buyouts, I have found out through Crockett that they actually didn't even have every franchisee on the same point of sale system. 
And it's that is was crazy to me. I didn't think that was even possible. So I'm like, you guys don't even know the revenue that how are you even collecting royalties is my other question. But it's a whole nother story. But yeah, it's definitely critical. You can't think about it soon enough. Every franchisor from day one should have a standard chart of accounts. That way, when you're trying to see your franchisee in Omaha versus your franchisee in New Jersey or whatever, you know, they actually you can compare their labor in an apples to apples format. And, you know, do they have salaried labor, their utility costs, everything like, like, right? It gets so hard at scale if you're not standardizing it early and you just create a massive headache. Obviously, our tool can help with it, but it's still work to unwind that kind of data mess if you don't start it early. So I think this is advice that we give to any brand that we're working with. We give it to a lot of brands that we just talked to as well. So how does Crockett help with a brand that does not really have that type of, has not really had that type of focus, you know? They just really didn't put that uh, high level of importance on it. it. wasn't a focus of theirs. So how does Crockett help that franchise or which ultimately helps their franchisees? Yeah. So, I mean, one, the, the tech platform helps standardize it. So we have like a AI-backed chart of account matching system. So franchisees integrate their accounting software, takes two minutes to integrate. So it's super quick. We sync all the data and then the franchisor just checks off to make sure that, that the line items or the accounts, right, from the franchisee's income statement and other financial statements map to the correct line item of the franchisor's master chart of accounts. So little bit getting into the weeds of the accounting world here, but that's what you have to do as a franchisor. And then secondly, we have a few partnerships with some bookkeeping firms that are professional, reputable, and they're big enough to work and take on franchisor clients and all their franchisees. So that's not like necessarily mandatory, but to me, it's a good option. I'd be curious for you how you think about that, but just to have all your franchisees using a specific bookkeeping firm so that you don't have to worry about because, I mean, I've seen it just with the brands we've already onboarded for Crockett. I mean, yeah, franchisees using their cousin or their uncle or trying to do it themselves. And it, they end up kind of going outside the lines and it just creates issues for everyone, honestly. It's tough. I think bookkeeping, I can see that. I know brands that have required bookkeepers or a few different types of vendors that are bookkeepers. I'd like to see a couple vendors, two or three vendors that kind of can all talk versus one. It's hard when brands have just one franchisees tend to think their franchisor is just making a bunch of money off it. And that may or may not be true, but even if they yeah. are thinking that it causes that kind of strife or could cause it. So I try to avoid that as much as I can, but I think yep. it's better for the franchisees. Ultimately, if there was a standard chart of accounts, standard way, everything is done, franchisees have visibility into certain KPIs across the system to see where they fall and yeah. gamify it a bit. So I like all of that stuff. Ultimately, transparency usually is the best way, right? I mean, even if things aren't, God forbid, aren't going well, if you have no visibility, like it usually just makes the system kind of, and the franchisees antsy because they're not doing well. It's isolating almost. So yeah. I think really in good times and bad, uh, you'd rather just be kind of upfront with everyone. So yeah, there's a lot to think about, man, for franchisors. So I sympathize with them. You know, it's hard and like, good thing, uh, you know, that you're out there helping coach them. Cause yeah, I mean, it's a lot to take on at once. And yeah, they definitely uh, can use some of the help uh, from good people. So, all right. Last question. What, where are you going to focus your energy in the next, next year on social? Are you going to double down on Twitter? Are you going to continue that newsletter? You're going to, you 
switch anything up? You test anything on your own content generation stuff? So the newsletter will stay consistent. The podcast, I'm going to change up the format. You know, I do like a weekly interview similar to you and it's just, it's a grind. And I also feel like I haven't, I've let the quality slip a bit because I just don't Dude, have this especially much time to now like- I'm coming on there next. And so that quality is <laughs> going to go way down. So <laughs> thanks for throwing me under the bus. Like you looked right yeah. at me. We are literally recording right <laughs> after this. He said, hey, the quality is getting ready to slip big time. So I won't forget that. All right, keep going. I was, for the record, I was referencing not the guest quality, just my interview preparation quality. But that's funny. Yes, yeah. uh, you are up in three minutes here. <laughs> yeah, but like in all seriousness, I just don't have the time to like prep for these interviews and really ask the questions. You know, I kind of go through the motions sometimes. And that's part of what makes content hard is it's, yeah. you know, you always kind of feel this need to, you, you have a good piece of content, but it's like, okay, what's up next? It's a never ending game. And so, yeah, the podcast will change a bit, but I definitely want to get back to doing more content. I've been heads down kind of guiding the product team within Crockett as well as doing some sales work actually, uh, and like reaching out to franchisors, getting them onboarded. So we've got good success in the last few months here. So now that I think we can eventually get a sales person into Crockett and kind of lead that team of getting more franchisors onboarded and consolidating that financial tech stack. Ideally, I just can focus more on Twitter and LinkedIn. As you said, my numbers need some improvement. So uh, that's the plan. All right, everyone should find your newsletter. Everybody should I don't have very many newsletters that I read. I read yours every time you pop it out. How do people find that? How do people find you in general in Crockett? So Crockett, you can go K-R-O-K-I-T.com. We did not spell it like Ray Kroc's family because our lawyers advised against that for liability purposes. <laughs> but the Wolf of Franchises, you can find at wolfoffranchises.com. Uh, you can Google the Wolf of Franchises. I think I am the only one with that name so far. <laughs> so uh, it'll probably come up pretty quick. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, feel free to DM me on Twitter, reply to the newsletter. That's that's me on the other end of it. It's not like a team. It's just me. So I'm happy to help if I can. Dude, thanks for coming on. I really wish you hadn't made that big mistake towards the end where you forgot what you're going to say. But hey, we'll make sure that it does not get <laughs> out. <laughs> Appreciate All it. Right, man. Appreciate it, Eric. <laughs> See ya. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.